Hi, I am Sophie Vaux, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In this new series, I am focusing on portraits of women who have an outstanding career in games. How did they get into games? How did they reach their high position and career? What have been their personal and career choices to get to their level, and why? I want to bring more light to the wide range of career paths available for women in leadership positions in the industry, and to inspire you to dream big for your life and career too. Let's begin. So today, I'm very delighted to have Xusha Zito with me. Xusha is the CTO and co-founder of Superbloom, a new studio focused on mobile lifestyle games. Before starting on the journey of a founder, she was a director of mobile engineering at DOTS and a senior engineering manager at the New York Times Games. Susha has over a decade of experience in shaping highly scalable and efficient systems that power games played by millions of daily users. Additionally, she has a big passion for building collaborative teams and fostering healthy environments where all team members can flourish. So hi, Susha. Very pleased to have you. Hi, it's exciting to be here. Hi. So let's begin a bit with where you are. Quite an impressive track record and company. And it's always exciting, of course, to start a new company. So my first question is, well, if it's not the company, what is the most exciting thing you are working on at the moment? Whether it's about the startup or personally, what would you like to share? Personally, raising a child has been very exciting. <laughs> I have a two-year-old and that's been a, my personal project in a way. Professionally, so I have been doing management and mostly management for the past four years. And right now, as we're starting our startup super early, at this point, it's me, Emily, and we hired a 3D artist. It's been super fun and exciting to be hands-on in code again, opening Unity, starting to write code, building things in there. At first, my reaction was like, oh my God, I forgot everything. I don't know how to do this anymore. What am I going to do? But things starting to come back and I kind of missed it, focusing so much on management that it's been really exciting to kind of be back in there. I totally understand it. Topics sometimes that come between us about what is the share of coding and hands-on work, especially in the technical role mm -hmm. and the management. And maybe let's spend some time here because I'm very curious about where your heart is, where, of course, uh, you have been in a management position and it has a different impact when you are leading a technical team and making technical choice, but you are less hands-on and now you are hands-on again. Do you find time to code on the side? Mm -hmm. How do you handle this? So in general, I love coding. I love being hands-on, solving some like logical questions and stuff like that. But I think I probably became a manager because I don't want to say I'm not a good developer, but I feel like my mindset is usually about big picture architecture. But when it comes to actual like very, very detailed technical problems, like when you go into the weeds of like, how does the rendering works? I just never been really that interested in it. And because of that, I feel like I never really got into those weeds. So I feel like for different people, that's where they're interested in. They read a lot of very technical blog posts and learn about that. I feel like I never been that person. I was more about kind of like big picture questions. And I think that's what drove me to management. That's what drove me to doing what I do. When I was at the New York Times or at DOTS and 
not being hands-on at all and focusing just on management, my job often became very meetings heavy, meetings, 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 talking Mm -hmm. about everything. And I miss the quiet, get in the rabbit hole, encode, you can have headphones on, you can listen to the music and you can have Mm -hmm. a few hours of focus. I missed it so much. So right now that's what I'm enjoying that I actually have time to, to really focus. Sounds like a flow state. I wanted to ask as well, because it's kind of a bit mysterious what a CTO is doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if there's maybe a single answer for this question, but to you, what is the main goal or mission as a CTO? And at the moment, especially with Superbloom? It is the role that can be so different in different companies and so different, especially depending on the size of the company. So I'll focus just on us at this early time. So we're so small and so early that I think this next few months will be a lot about just wearing a lot of hats and making very random decisions that you might have not even thought that you will be making. Like for example, what expensive service we're gonna be using and what accountant we need to be using. And right now it's a lot of just admin stuff that is happening that we need to figure out. And again, it's not very technical, but you need to be thinking about it. But speaking of like CTO from technical perspective as a role, so early on in the startup, focusing a lot on what to do and how to do it from the technical perspective. And kind of like when it is time to be building something in a scalable way that it's foolproof and stable and sustainable for the future versus when to throw away code really quick just to answer some questions early. That is something that is so important for a CTO or any technical manager at any stage of the company is kind of like constantly looking for that balance of when to try something new when to build something proven, when to use a third-party tool, when to build it out yourself, when to commit to like building a large architecture, when to build something quick and small. And I feel like that's a lot of what the CTO's role is actually is. And of course, hiring and growing a team of people, defining what your culture needs to be. And then the fun part is like when you have a team is actually growing those people like focusing on those people and trusting them and finding how to kind of help them grow, how to help them grow career. Once you actually build up the team, I feel like that's another exciting and important part. So let's break down the questions in two parts. So you mentioned like one part that is really about the strategic choices, especially very early on for the company that can be quite deterministic, actually, as you know, with architecture and technical choices in the long run. And there's a second part more about a team culture. So let's start first with the technical part. Also to give a context here of the games you are looking into. So mobile lifestyle games for audience here is, as I understand, quite close in the same category of games as we know, like design, home, I think covered fashion. And from my knowledge as well, these games are very heavy in the backend server and all these events and competition events and so on. So I was curious here, what is your approach technically about it, where I'm pretty sure the choice that have been made in those games were from 10 years ago. What do you see as new opportunity when you want to create such a big game platform like this, maybe in a smarter, more effective Mm way? I don't want to say I will be making maybe a smarter decision than (laughs) other very smart people have made. We probably will make similar or different mistakes. But a few things that we have been thinking about 
in the way of what we need to focus on, what are important questions we need to answer early, what are things we know we will need to pay a lot of attention into. And fewer of those things are like we want to go with a pretty realistic look in our games and of course, the classic question, how do we avoid 3D but make things really <laughs> sharp and real and performance on mobile? And we will be in this phase early on in the prototype and not even think about backend yet, even though we know that there will be a lot of kind of monsters in that world <laughs> first, but focus a lot on rendering and the look and feel of the experience on the gameplay itself. Like basically, how do we build asset, the workflow between the designer and the engineer, even with the prototype phase, like the back and forth is as smooth as possible just to figure out what the workflow will be in the future. And then of course, those type of games are very backend heavy. There has been a lot of kind of advances in the past few years, even within Unity of how to like drive assets and we'll be doing like explorations there to build kind of like a smooth system. Not only user experience, but experience of the people who make content is so important that you actually will need to focus on that a lot. The game will be as much fun the people who make it <laughs> having. <laughs> so you kind of want to make sure that there is a robust system and is fun and easy to use for them as well. I was curious more like what's you know your thinking to approach it because it's a big project to go for games like this which justify even more how strategic your role is in building this type of games. I think what what I try to how I try to think about it is there's a list of questions we need to be answering. If we try to answer them all at the same time, we're going to lose focus and not find any answers. So it's kind of like right now for us there's few important questions like is this going to be fun and we need to get to that as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And we don't even need to be building technically proof systems to answer those questions because we want to get to those questions really quick. Like we build a prototype that is just visual. We don't need to worry about backend. We need to worry about how we communicate with the artists to be able to iterate on the look and feel of it as quick as possible. Pick first few questions you want to focus and focus on that. Once you answer those questions, then you kind of move on to the next stage, <laughs> the next level of the development. But even though that we know what the future questions will be, it's just distracting to be thinking about trying to solve them right away. So we want to kind of stay focused. Often that's what with engineers, it's very tempting, it's like building the house, the beautiful system. I hear from your answer, it's very product-oriented, actually. First, let's make a game that focuses well on the look, how realistic it is, like really the experience. And I think this is a good balance to find, uh, indeed, where first we have something that is worth building more for and having this discipline as a small company to not overbuild before you have a product that works. This learning is actually coming from a big mistake where we kind of did an opposite at Dots one time we were building a game and we knew that we want, because of the type of the users we were targeting, we wanted to be very hard to hack. And we focused so much on building everything to be served from the server. Everything is like validated on the server. We spent so much time building those systems, but we actually didn't prove yet. Is this a fun game yet? <laughs> and once we actually got to like started testing the game and everything, 
We've learned that all those systems actually stood in the way of us iterating quickly the gameplay itself because there were so many hoops that you needed to jump through. So what we actually had to do to iterate on the game, we had to turn it all off, even though we spent like months and months and months building it. (laughs) And that's why I started thinking a lot about like, what are the most important questions now? How do we answer those questions quickly? What are the lessons we learn from it? And then you can pause and say like, okay, if we learned what we need to be building now for real to production, now how do we do it in the correct way? Kind of like pausing Mm -hmm. and revisiting and looking back as a leaders, it's always tempting to just say, no, let's just build on top of it. Let's go fast. Let's go fast. But it's so important to take those pauses and kind of revisit what you already have built and see what changes you need to be making. Because if you don't do that, it will fall over. But if you just focus on making things perfect, then you just know we're going to get to the result. Yeah. Oh, it's very good strategic thinking. It's kind of the same thinking when we think of a product strategy, but here it's like applied to technical choice. So that's super interesting. And uh, then about the team and, you know, hiring is also strategic, at least for the technical parts and the people you are responsible for. What is the type of profile you're looking for? What's your vision? If the first core team you want to build and why? Last week with Emily, we've been focusing a lot about thinking about that. In general, we first focused on what kind of team we want to be, just to make sure that we're on the same page and we kind of can focus and let people know like this is what we value. And we focus a lot actually on collaboration and what we kind of have been saying is curiosity, people being self-starters, so they don't wait for you to tell them what to do, but actually excited to be searching and finding answers and coming to you and telling them, being open in telling you like, this is what I think we should be doing. Because I feel like early on in such a small team, it's so important. So another thing that is so important is that people respect each other, trust each other, and in a way not kind of create boundaries of their function. Like I'm doing engineering, you're never allowed to say anything about engineering if you're like 3D artist or other way around. Like we want mm-hmm. a very collaborative team where everyone is allowed to speak up outside of their function and just learn from each other and work together. And From engineering perspective, the very first kind of partner for myself I would be looking for is people who are eager to be kind of like driving detailed like technical decisions and architectural decisions and collaborating on that and also working on establishing the best practices and processes together with me, deciding when is the right time to do that. But also, as I mentioned, like, I'm not a person who have a lot of very detailed knowledge in things like what is the best way to improve performance for 2D versus 3D versus that and that. So I would love a person who knows that, who is very, very kind of like experienced in that. And I can trust them that they they know how to do it. And also people who are eager to be working on the backend heavy games because... I remember when I was working at Dots and we were interviewing people for Unity developers, what I realized how many times I had to a little bit break people's hearts who are coming into game development thinking it's all fun about making characters move around and all just like about the gameplay. And I had to break people's heart that it's like, you know, 
it's probably like 20% of <laughs> what, your, what your role actually is. And I think people who understand how production-ready life games build and what it requires to build them is what's so important. So especially for the first technical hire, for you, a, a partner you're looking for, more like second, in the sense like somebody you can trust on the operational mm -hmm. part. Do I understand that is quite a experience and senior role? Yeah, so we do want to have a pretty experienced senior lead unit developer joining the team to be starting to define the kind of the foundation of the first game that then will also serve as a foundation for future games. So it's kind of like this balance of focusing on solving the current problem, but also thinking about how to make sure that it will be reusable in the future. As we think about lifestyle games, there's a lot of things that can be reused again if the game is completely different theme but it follows the same pattern so we want to make sure we kind of create the reusability there and for that we want to make sure that we have kind of like pretty senior first hires who can do that yeah especially when you're uh, such a small group you know every new hire counts and you want people that are very autonomous and that means also have experience and share the same vision so they can get things done without your push all the time yeah exactly all of us when we get into this building a startup we come in usually with some ambitions we have something that you haven't tried before and i feel like I kind of see that often the first developers who would join startups, often people who have done a lot, seen a lot, and want to kind of like reuse what they have learned from ground up. There's a lot of people like that, but it's also very on demand. <laughs> yeah, I know, I, know, I know about this reality. <laughs> the first step of hiring is like using our network, reaching out everyone we know, everyone they know, And then once we kind of like run out of options there, then we'll start kind of reaching out to just going down the list of random people <laughs> and reaching out to them. The step that is usually helpful is when you are more visible about the vision of your company, which we are doing here today, and also more visible, of course, about the games or, you know, whatever you have to share. This, from my experience, has helped. Yeah. I realized I didn't really focus that much about it. I'm focusing so much on technical. Yeah, it's uh, you have to do on all the fronts when it's about your own company. So mm -hmm. you change hats uh, all exactly. the time. Uh, so then let's also take a, a little step back on your career. Have you always been a developer in games? And if not, how did you get into games? That's a good question. So I haven't always been a developer in games. And Dots was the first games company I worked in. Before Dots... I was an iOS developer. At first, I was working as a freelancer, then startup. I actually got into development in a very <laughs> kind of strange way. I had a degree as a mechanical engineer, and my brother was a software engineer. And around 2008, he started learning iOS development because that's when kind of iPhones started to become available and popular, revolutionizing the, the industry. And he was saying, like, you should learn iOS development. And that's when I started learning. Then I started working with him as a freelancer. Then I started working for some New York startups. And between like 2013 to 2014, I was looking for a job as an iOS developer, interviewed at different companies. And a lot of people would ask me, what is my favorite app? 
and I would say Dots. At that time, Dots was, there was only Dots original. It came out, I think when iPhones were like changing their design from like bubbly and realistic to very flat and Dots just looked so, it was perfect timing. It looked just like what the new design was. It didn't look like a game. I wasn't really a gamer. I never considered myself a gamer and I started playing that game over and over and over again. And so when I was going for different jobs, people were asking me, what is your favorite app? And I would say Dots. And I had an interview at Giphy and they asked me the same question. And I said Dots and they said, well, you know, they're next door. They're in the same office, you should go talk to them. And at that time, I had a realization. I was like, no, I don't know how to make games. I have no idea how to make games. And I was curious. And I was like, how do you make games? And I sat down and I started researching. What is the engines people use? What is used for mobile games? I started researching at that time. Cocos 2D was used for iOS apps. I started trying, started playing around with it. And I built a tiny little clone of Dots. Also, at the same time, the recruiter was calling me and I said, okay, yes, I will come interview for Dots. And I basically brought that clone to the interview. And I was like, I thought I don't know how to make games, but I did this. I think I can do this job. <laughs> so the team at that time, Dots was a part of like a like startup incubator called BetterWorks. So it was a big room of few different companies in the same room. And Dots was a tiny little startup of around five people. I joined when we were building prototype of two dots. And so I first joined as an iOS developer. It was amazing. We released the two dots as an iOS app. It's a very like a fun success story. It was like unexpected success. I mean, I'm sure it was expected for the founders, but <laughs> <laughs> and then we grew the team. We decided to switch to Unity. All the developers we had, which were at that time were probably around three. We started relearning Unity. We hired a CTO who was our amazing lead. And then I basically, over time, became a technical lead on Two Dots project. And when we started building other games, we realized we need kind of a person who thinks of kind of like reusability and like, how do we not repeat or rewrite the same things over and over? And how do we kind of have an ecosystem of games? And so I became a director of mobile engineering and managed the unit engineers and also the libraries and shareability of the games. Yeah. So that was kind of my intro into the game industry. But also I remember when I first started at Dots, and when I started building games, I was like, oh my God, it's so much more fun. Because what I was realizing as I was building mobile apps, it was pretty repetitive. It was very similar. Mm. Like, oh, you need to be thinking about image caching and preloading and scroll views and transitioning from, <laughs> like, it was very <laughs> similar all the time. But when you work in games, there's sometimes problems. You're like, wait, how do you, how, what is this? How do you fix this? How do you figure this out? So it was always more unique. Every problem is more unique. I think you made a very good pitch why games for developers yeah, can be so exciting in these unique problems with unique solutions. Uh, I've never thought about this, but actually it makes a lot of sense if you are looking for the most complex problems. Because games, you know, you are not solving a need. You're trying to, I don't know, make an app for food delivery here. It's like, make something fun. How do you do that? 
Yeah, I think in other companies that are not games, there are unique problems, but they, at this point, often on the backend side, there's like, how do you create AI in recommending the right product to the right person or like things like that. But then when it's a client side, it's just about information delivery. But when you build games, there's just more on the client side in a way, which makes it more fun. Also, sweet story about how you got into that and quite bold, like coming to the interview with a clone of a game. I think that's the best way of making the interviews. Like, I can do it. So, you know, I'm ready. I realized, like, at that time, I was a very shy person. So I kind of, like, I knew dots were hiring, but I didn't apply because I didn't know how to do games. I never done games I probably know the right fit. I kind of self-selected them. But then when other people started saying to me, like, you should apply, we're going to move your application to them. And I was like, okay, I guess I have to do this. <laughs> so I learned that I needed to just trust in myself. Yeah, that's a good reminder. And so after uh, your time at DOTS, you joined also New York Times Games. How did this transition happen for you? When did you feel it was a moment to leave for you? And what were your expectations when joining New York Times? That was a very kind of like a life changing push for me. So like, I always loved working at Dots and I felt like every year for me there was different. I stayed there for six years and in 2019, I had a baby and we had leadership changes in the team. I knew that even in the future, my role probably will be changing to something even different And I was excited about it, but I also didn't know what to expect from myself when I will come back from a parental leave. And when I realized when I was coming back is that I changed a lot. <laughs> so I loved going to the office. The Dots office culture was super fun, but it was very in-office culture. We were always together. But we probably had a couple people who worked remotely, but very few And when I was in the parental leave and was thinking about coming back, I was like, oh my God. So my commute is 40 minutes. I usually leave at 9 a.m. to go to the office and come back home probably at about 7 p.m. I was like, so five days a week, I'm not going to see my baby. After four months to be able to come back, I will have to put her in the daycare and not see her five times a week. And I realized that she's not going to be a baby for long enough. <laughs> I need to kind of like... I want to make a priority for myself that I stay, like spend more time with her. But I also didn't want to just not work. I didn't want to become a stay-at-home mom. I was always worried that I'm gonna, if I extend that, that I will just forget everything I learned in my professional life and, and never come back. So I realized that I'm gonna try to find a more remote-friendly environment so I can basically work from home save those like few windows of time where I would be usually commuting to, to spend time with her. And I started looking for a different job and I was pretty open to any tech. I wasn't just limiting myself in games and New York times reached out to me. And at first I was like, they're in New York. They're not remote friendly. And I got on the call with them and I said that I was like, I'm looking for remote only. And they were like, Oh, that's fine. And we need a manager for a games team. Do you want to join? I mean, there was more longer <laughs> interview process. But when I thought about it, I was like, okay, it's remote. It's larger company, which is interesting to me. I haven't worked in a large company. I'm curious how it works. It's games team, but it is not only mobile. So basically, I was managing 
a team that was called Platform Team, and it was a lot about kind of architecture of web, mobile, and backend, and how they all connect to each other, basically. And it was very interesting because for a long time, I always loved mobile development and Unity development, but I always was curious to get closer and more hands-on and closer to backend. That was all end of January 2020. And not going to lie, it was an easy transition because pandemic started, I had no childcare, I had to do a new job. New York Times is not an easy company to work in. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of like stakeholders and moving parts. But it was all its own new experience for me. And I feel like I learned so much. But I also learned that I miss small companies. As much as it was a learning experience, I also learned that I'm impatient when so many, there's so many stakeholders, decisions are made. It's much harder to make decisions. Everything needs to be really talked and talked and talked and talked for hours about before you actually do a change. So I decided that a smaller company is probably my, my environment. Would you say from your time at New York Times, the main learning that you got out of this experience, was it what you just shared, like what you were looking for? You know, there was a lot of big learnings. And one of them, I will say, that is kind of pretty personal, but I want to mention it. So I was at Dots for six years and I joined as a developer. And then I was manager, I was a director, I was managing a lot of people. And in general, I had a lot of respect there. My reports really liked me. I had so much love in the team for me, and it was really humbling. Also helping, making me feel confident. But I had this feeling of like, is it just here? Am I good only here? Because I've been here for so long and I just know everything. Can I actually be a good manager in a completely new team with people I don't know? And I kind of was also joining New York Times to kind of like, test myself in a way. Mm-hmm. and on my last week leaving the team I felt like teary because I realized that I built such connection with my report such connection with people I work with and as I was leaving I was like oh I actually answered this question for myself <laughs> and I feel like that was a big learning that I took away that I think I'm a good manager. <laughs> I'm usually a shy person, but I feel like I kind of did a test for myself and proved myself for myself in a way. That's great. I mean, from what you described, you have left an environment where you were very comfortable, like trusted and decided to start again from zero. Building trust, it takes a lot of time through yourself really out of a comfort zone. And it's it's a brave move. And this is, I believe, how you actually grow when you can recognize that you are in a very comfortable state and you are not like at the full capacity or potential or where you can try to address new challenges. And that's what you've done from what I understand going to New York Times. So that's a pretty bold move again. Yeah, thank you. I guess after the New York Times, you joined us was Super Bloom. And from all this experience, I'm curious, like now looking back, uh, more reflection point on your career, if there's one most significant experience or event that really shaped you to who you are today, you know, your vision you have about technical choice, teams, people, and so on? You know, I will say I was super lucky to have an amazing manager when I was at DOTS. I probably need to give a shout out to him. So first, his name is Chris Diener. He was the CTO of DOTS. And 
there have been so many moments where he was the one to recognize some strengths in me that I didn't even think about. And he would say, you're doing this and you're doing this and you're doing this. You are good at this. You should take the next step to try it. And I feel like it's so important. And I was so lucky to have that and have that support. And it's so important because I think a lot of us people, we see a lot of bad things about ourselves that we want to change and focus on that so much that we don't focus on what are the things we're actually good at and how to take them to the next level, how to kind of keep growing what you're good at and having a person who actually recognizes that and you pushes you in that direction and tells you you should do it is really helpful. And I feel like that's what really helped me grow my career. And from then, even when looking for other jobs, for me, it's been so important to be like the person who will be my manager, my mentor, my partner, do I have that strong connection with them? Do I trust them? Do I feel like they really understand me? And I feel like that has been the most important part for me in my next kind of like career moves and even with Superbloom. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to acknowledge is the number of women actually in the engineering roles. And I'm very glad to hear that you've been supported by your former manager to see the potential you had where you didn't even see it yourself. And I think everyone, when you're lucky, deserve to have someone, you know, helping you grow when you don't have this confidence or even vision for yourself. So it seems that it has influenced you a lot. And I'm glad to see, uh, you know, a female CTO. It's not common, but I wonder what's your view here of like parity, like number of women in engineering career? And why do you think so few or even less, I would say, in leadership technical position? That's a good question. You know, I, I want to say that I'm happy to see how much we all talk about it and how much we all kind of starting to recognize it. And even when I was at New York Times and like in the last two years, I think the number of women engineering managers, even in, within those two years that I joined and I left, almost doubled. And that's mm. exciting. And I'm glad that it means that we all creating a good support platform for women to continue, like to start engineering and grow into engineering, like and grow into leadership. In games, I feel like it's still much lower numbers than it is in this more standard kind of regular engineering. And I think what you're doing is amazing that you do focus a lot on bringing in female speakers, focusing a lot on women and games as well. So thank you for... Thank you. I mean, our mission for Superbloom is kind of like diversifying mobile games for women specifically. So we are focusing on building games for women and... I think in general, there's like this historical view on the games as like, oh, it's man's industry. I'm glad it's changing and we want to continue changing that. And we want to do it not only from the perspective of the games we build, but also from the perspective of the teams we build to build it. Um, Focusing a lot on bringing in the people aligned with the vision and the mission we want and then growing them would be more important than bringing in someone extremely experienced in the industry, but has nothing to do with what we want to build. Like Mm -hmm. we want to kind of align a lot the fact that we're building games for women, but we want the people who are building it also be excited about the mission of building games for women and focusing on kind of the hobbies women 
alike. Yeah. I think also the product will for sure resonate a lot as well with, you know, more diversified staff. I was talking mm -hmm. to um, Sarah, a uh, former GM of COVID Fashion, and she built a very, very diverse team there because, of course, we as developers, we need to understand the product we are making. So then very naturally, more women were joining the team, like really thinking of the product and the target audience and connecting with yeah. the audience. I'm very um, looking forward to observing the composition of your team a year from now where I believe it will follow a similar path. Yeah. I think also when we've been thinking about kind of like the values of the team, that's why we also focus so much on empathy and collaboration in addition to people being self-starters and curious because the environment is so important to have the team diverse. It's not only about hiring diverse people, but also keeping them and having them feel safe and comfortable and understood in that environment. And if you don't focus on making sure that your team is empathetic and respectful and open with each other and trusting with each other, you're going to create an environment where people are not going to feel safe and comfortable and going to leave and may possibly leave the industry because... That's the experience, their experience in the industry. That's kind of another reason why it's so important to us to be built in that environment. Yeah, I totally agree. Expectations about the workplace have changed where people are not just looking for a job. I mean, you can work from anywhere. I think that's because there are so many options that some people are actually looking for more stability in a place with something that they're more aligned in their values, in their mission. So, of course, it takes more time to find, you know, it's a matchmaking process. But when it works, then you have really like a long-term commitment and relationship that is built as well with the team. I also realized that like the experience I went through that was for me so kind of like big decision-making point when I became a parent, I did consider just stop working and become a mom and What was important for me is being in a remote, flexible mm -hmm. environment. And that's what we want to build in our company too. It, it is fully distributed. We're not sitting in exact, like you have to clock in at this time and clock mm -hmm. out at that time. And hopefully that will allow women to make the choice that also aligns with kind of being a mother. Because I feel like for a long time, it's been this point where it's like, Do I want to be a mom or do I want to build yeah. my career? And I don't want that to be a choice. Yeah. I want it to be okay to be living together. <laughs> I think uh, your company as a two co-founders, you are both parents with uh, Emily. It's very exemplary and very inspirational. Like you don't have to make this choice. It's possible. And I think you're showing here the example where the misconception would be, well, if you're a parent, you have less time or you have no energy. And I believe that for people watching you as well, They can see that it's possible and then inspire other women working and developing their career in leadership roles. Whether they make a choice of family or not should not be uh, mutually exclusive in continuing pursuing the career or building a company like you're doing. It's just great. Thank you. All right. So we are also reaching the end of our conversation because we have touched on a lot of topics today. It was uh, great also getting a bit in the depth of technical of how to build lifestyle games, but um, also your own path. And so I will end it as well with three rapid fire questions, uh, which you don't know about. And the idea is you answer them as fast as possible. Oh, no. In your mind. <laughs> are you ready for this? Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. My first question, what keeps you awake at night? Oh my God. A war? You know, <laughs> totally unrelated to my career, but totally related to the current state of the world. 
it is important to mention it as well because we are not just workers, right? We do have a lot of many other things that are happening in our lives. And second question then is, what are you dreaming about? What is something, a dream that you visualize for your next 10 years that you'd like to happen? You know, because it's the first thing that comes to my mind, it's kind of always kind of contradictory with what I always get myself into. But I dream about kind of like peaceful, calm, just like lifestyle where you just need to not worry about anything and can like read a book and I don't know, garden. But then I also start companies and... (laughs) (laughs) You have a whole life to maybe, you know, a dream, you know, it's something you pursue. So exactly, you, you can figure it out in uh, 20 years from now when you have yeah, done exactly. it. <laughs> Only when, when the company does very well, <laughs> take a break and, and do yeah. that. And my last question, what is your motto in life? Mm, do I have one? That's a good question. So I'm originally from Russia. And when I moved to the US, I came here right after college. And I had this moment where I was realizing, I'm like, will I regret not doing this? I feel like when there's a big decision that potentially life-changing, I kind of always remind myself that I might regret not doing it more than I will regret doing it. And that was kind of how I decided to stay in the U.S. And in the back of my mind, I had this feeling where I'm like, I just finished my college I need to start a new life. Do I want to try to do it here? Do I want to go back to my hometown and kind of go back to my old life? And the question of like, will I regret it if I go back? My answer was yes. So it kind of kept pushing me through figuring things out and doing hard things. And I feel like a lot of other decisions we already talked about in this conversation have been kind of pushed with the similar motto. A very good one. And I would say it sounded really like the choice you've made with this uh, mindset. Yeah, probably. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, Sisha, for um, the conversation today. It was very enjoyable and uh, very inspiring. Yeah. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you. It was so much fun. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this new episode of Raise and Play podcast. If you enjoyed the content and want to support what we're doing, Rate and review the podcast, spread the word about it. If you'd like to contribute to the change too, reach out to me on LinkedIn for a collaboration. You'll find all the rest of the content on riseandplay.io, including my free masterclass on conscious leadership, how to hire a team with a vision, or how to lead and build a team for the long-term game. Until the next time, 